Hi, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see you. What a delight to have Crosby, Stills, and Nash leading us this morning, isn't it? I was so surprised when I came in. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Um, we're in week three of a 10-week series based on a book by Rich Villadas called The Deeply Formed Life. If I didn't say already, my name's Nelson, one of the pastors here. Uh, those of you in the room, so glad that you, uh, again, braved all the ambiguity, the weather, to be present here. Those joining via live stream, good to see you as well. See you. <laughs> uh, chapter 2 opens with this story. Have you ever been scolded by a monk? I have. I recall a convicting conversation I had with Father William Menninger, a well-known Christian monk and one of the founders of the revitalization of silent prayer in monastic settings. He was at our church for a weekend seminar and was to be interviewed on a Sunday morning. Having given himself to a monastic life for decades, Father Menninger has been deeply formed by silent prayer. Much of his daily life is spent in this way. During the worship gathering, our congregation was passionately singing out the chorus based on Psalm 46, verse 10, I will be still and know you are God. Immediately following the song, we jumped right into another song and continued with exuberant praise. I was sure the good monk would be impressed with our joyful noise. However, at the end of the service, I was in for a rude awakening. Father Menninger stood in the church lobby greeting people, taking pictures of all the activity with his massive iPad. <laughs> he smiled and laughed with everyone he greeted. I looked on all this with great joy. After 20 minutes of this, I had to escort him back for our second of three Sunday services. That's when his smile and laughter turned into puzzlement. This monk, an 80-something-year-old man who had no trouble sharing his thoughts, pulled me aside and asked if he could offer me some feedback on our service. He didn't let me answer, and he didn't wait until we returned to my office. He decided to share his thoughts in the middle of a crowded church lobby with his eyeglasses sitting on the tip of his nose, his iPad in hand, he started to lecture me. It was the first time he'd been to our church, and here he was already providing correction. He said, you all sang about being still and knowing that God is God. That's great, but why don't you practice what you sing? Why didn't you take a moment to be still? I was thinking, why don't you take a moment to leave, old man? But I gently smiled and said, I, I don't know. He continued to, not so gently, offer words of wisdom about the gift of silence in our worship gatherings. That moment has stuck with me because it reminded me how easy it is to sing about being still, but how hard it is to practice it. I was being invited to a deeply formed way of contemplation. Did we find it? No, okay. The quote that would have been on the screen says this, a life formed by contemplative rhythms entails particular practices. Although there are many practices from which to choose, I want to focus on four that have helped me to get to know God deeper. I believe they will do the same for you. Furthermore, these practices will prepare you to engage your inner life, racial hostility, your mission, and the ever-present polarization you encounter each day on social media or in your own home. These four contemplative practices are silent prayer, Sabbath keeping, the slow reading of scripture, and the commitment to stability. That's where we're going today. 
Friends, there's so many gems in this chapter. We could easily spend a week looking at each of the four practices he lays out, and we'd still be barely scratching the surface. As you know, entire immersive programs have been set up to form people in contemplative practice. Uh, the Living School at the Center for Action and Contemplation, taught by Richard Rohr and Barbara Holmes and Cynthia Bourgeau, Brian McLaren, James Finley, and others, takes two years. My training to become a spiritual director took three years. Libraries full of books have been written on each practice alone, and monks, of course, devote their entire lives to these rhythms. And indeed, if we are to become mystics, last week I tried to make a case that we all ought to do so, then we got to settle in. Being formed in contemplative rhythms is a lifelong journey. So given all that, this week I felt keenly aware of the risk of trying to say or do too much in a single sermon called Deeply Formed Practices of Contemplative Rhythms. I'm also aware that the temptation for us is to keep talking and reading and singing and podcasting endlessly about such practices without actually doing them. Talking about prayer is not the same as praying. Reading about silence is not the same as being silent. Listening to a podcast about Sabbath is different than practicing Sabbath. Although, listening to a podcast could be part of a healthy Sabbath practice. All of that said, teaching matters. And we obviously need some understanding of any spiritual practice or habit or discipline we're curious about in order to enter into it with the proper intention and posture. So Villetus talks about four practices my plan is to focus on two of them, silent prayer and the slow reading of scripture. And I'll very lightly touch on the other two, Sabbath keeping and the commitment to st stability, but we're mostly going to need to skip those. And then we're going to engage in uh, one practice actually together before coming to the table. So are you with me? Even without slides? No, sorry. So sorry. I'm really glad I printed those uh, Lectio um, scriptures that we're going to get to. Uh, silent prayer, first practice. So have you noticed how our ability to be silent with someone is often or largely contingent on our level of intimacy or familiarity with that person? Now, I'm talking about what Villetus calls bonding silence. I'm not talking about the kind of unbonding that comes when you give someone the silent treatment. Your spouse, partner, parent, roommate, sibling, or friend, we all know the kind of silence that's born out of passive aggression or anger. No, I have in view the kind of silence where the better you know a person, the easier, uh, the more comforting, the more pleasing it is to be silent in that person's presence. Have you also noticed how this analogy carries over into our lives with God? I agree with Villetus, who makes the claim that discomfort with being silent with God might just reveal how unfamiliar we are with God. There are a lot of faith traditions that are, quite frankly, pretty noisy. We need a good scolding by a monk now and then. I love this quote. Silent prayer is one of the greatest gifts we have to experience a deeply formed life in Christ. At the core of silent prayer is the commitment to establish relationship with God based on friendship rather than demands. Read that last sentence because you can't see it and it's just so good. At the core of silent prayer is the commitment to establish relationship with God based on friendship rather than demands. 
So there's room for prayer lists. There's time to make requests, to petition God, to cry out in lament or moments of need. We do this every Sunday at various points in our gathering, including our response time through prayers of the people, in our liturgies, even in our singing. And silent prayer is not meant to replace other forms of prayer. It's meant to complement them. But these verbal ways of praying best emerge from moments of silence that both energize and shape the words that we offer to God. So that's why our structure of group spiritual direction, or GSD, or GST, or MSG, our GSD is the acronym, it's peppered with intentional periods of silence. We begin ourselves by grounding ourselves in a poem or a psalm, then silence for five minutes. Then someone shares a slice of their life's journey for up to 15 minutes, then another five minutes of silence. Then the group has an opportunity to respond. More silence. Then we repeat these steps all over again for another presenter. There's something about listening to someone's experience, holding their story without interrupting them, and taking a focused, intentional five simply to be with what you've heard, with yourself, both with and in God, before offering a response to it. Or just think of the regular flow of life. You know when you get an email or a text that just sets you off, just makes your blood boil. We know the wisdom of taking a minute before responding, don't we? Whether that's a literal 60 seconds or a night or two or a week to sleep on it. Villadas describes the practice this way. In basic terms, silent prayer is the practice of focusing our attention upon God through the simplicity of shared presence. It's a surrender of our words to be present with the word, with Jesus. So how do you practice silent prayer? I'm going to briefly outline one method known as centering prayer. Villadas doesn't call it that in the chapter specifically, but it sounds like what he does as well. So here I'm following principles laid out by uh, the late Father Thomas Keating, who is a Trappist monk who helped develop this practice through his teaching and his writing. So of course, first, you got to decide how long you're going to be silent for. Uh, 20 minutes is recommended, but it's fine to start with a shorter length, say five or 10 minutes. Whatever you decide, set a timer so you don't need to look at your phone or your watch or just be constantly checking how, much, how many minutes do I have left. There's a Centering Prayer app, actually. If you go into the App Store, enter Centering Prayer in the search field, and it'll come up. And I had an image to show you what it looks like, but you'll find it. It'll be one of the top two hits. If you've got questions about it, you can ask me later. So the four guidelines, here's how you do Centering Prayer. First, you choose a sacred word or a short phrase and that word or phrase becomes the symbol of your intention to consent to what God wants to do in you, to God's presence and action in you. So be still and know, Emmanuel, love. It's really up to you. And the sacred word, whatever you choose, is not sacred because of its meaning, but because of its intent. So it expresses your intention to consent to God who by the Spirit, as Scripture teaches, dwells within you. The sacred word is the focal point to return to when you notice you're engaged in the thoughts going by. And I'll say more about thoughts in a moment. So you choose a sacred word, short phrase. That's the symbol of your intent 
to consent to God. Second step is to sit comfortably, to close your eyes, settle briefly, silently introduce the sacred word as the symbol of your consent to God's presence and action within. So you might repeat or just repeat it slowly in your mind, your heart, your imagination. Third, when you become aware of the thoughts, not if, but when. Thoughts are body sensations, feelings, images, reflections, return ever so gently to the sacred word, whenever you notice it. So Keating goes deeper into what thoughts are. Any perception that appears on the inner screen of consciousness, it could be a concept, a reflection, a body sensation, an emotion, an image, a memory, a plan, a noise from outside, a meeting agenda, a feeling of peace, a do list item that you don't want to forget, a calendar appointment, a reminder, even a spiritual communication. Anything that registers on the inner screen of your consciousness, of your awareness, is a thought in the context of centering prayer. So the practice consists of letting go of every kind of thought during the time of prayer. Whatever it is, the counsel is always to gently return to your sacred word, which is the symbol of our consenting to God. So when your timer goes off, at the end of your centering prayer session, remain in silence for a brief moment before you resume your daily activities. Why do this? What happens as we engage in this practice? How does it form us? A little bit more from Keating. In centering prayer, we withdraw our attention from the ordinary flow of thoughts. We tend to identify ourselves with that flow. But there is a deeper part of ourselves, the spiritual level. So centering prayer opens our awareness to this deep level of our being, which might be compared to a stream or a river on which our memories, images, feelings, inner experiences, and the awareness of outward things are all resting. He continues, many people are so identified with the ordinary flow of their thoughts and feelings that they're not aware of the source from which these mental objects are emerging. Like boats or debris floating along the surface of a river, our thoughts and feelings must be resting on something. And this something is the inner stream of consciousness, which is our participation in God's being. Now, some of us might be thinking, what if I have a complicated relationship with silence? I get distracted way too easily. Well, you're not alone, and it doesn't matter. There's a story about a time when Father Thomas Keating was teaching Centering Prayer to a group of nuns, and one of them was struggling with the practice. She just said, oh, Father, I have 10,000 thoughts. And without blinking an eye, Father Thomas replied, how wonderful. 10,000 opportunities to return to God. Maybe you're like this nun. Maybe you're like Villadas who said, I used to believe that distraction while in prayer was a sign that I was a bad Christian. Can I get an amen or a hands up? As it turns out, he continues, distraction is a sign that I am a human being. In my notes, I have exclamation marks written all across the next line. I think we could just pray and go home right now. Just receive that word. Distraction in prayer does not make you a bad Christian. It makes you a human being. 
So success in centering prayer, doing it right, lies not in our ability to remain free from distraction, but in our willingness to keep consenting to love. Keep returning. And the thought is, if we can learn to practice this in silence, maybe we'll get better at turning to God in the busyness as well, in the noisy flow of existence. So there's a companion practice that we don't have time to dig into, but it's known as welcoming prayer. If you're curious about that, I invite you to look into it or ask me about it. And that helps form us in turning to God amidst the busy flow. So if you've never done Centering Prayer before and you decide to try it this week, look up the app and remember this, in sitting with silence with God for 20 minutes or however long you choose, you may not have 10,000 thoughts, but you might have 100. It's pretty possible, which means you'll have 100 opportunities to return to God's loving practice or presence and action within you. And when's the last time you did 100 awesome things in 20 minutes? Seriously, I'll wait. <laughs> okay, so, and who knew that distraction could in fact be a conduit of grace, right? Distraction can be a conduit of grace, a means of reunion with God. Over time, centering prayer helps us become attuned to the beauty and mystery of being grounded in God. As the Apostle Paul put it in Acts 17, in God, we live and move and have our being. Really love this practice. I am such a novice at it, but it has shaped my life. I think my own non-reactivity, uh, the way I am with myself and others in some pretty profound ways. Um, so I encourage you to give it a try and see what it does over the long term. Because there's times after the 20 minutes, like, well, did I just waste that time? Or it's a real fight. Million distractions. Not, never mind 10,000. It just feels like I'm just fighting with my do list, whatever it happens to be. But trust the practice. Trust that action of returning to God. Okay. Um, Sabbath keeping. There's way too much that could be said about this practice. So this is one of the ones we're mainly skipping, but two things, including the fact Sabbath is one of only two of the Ten Commandments that's stated in the positive. Did you ever notice that? Remember the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath. Observe the Sabbath. The rest of the commandments are things you should not do. So it's nice to have one or two. The other is honor your father and mother, of course. The second thing, um, the grounding principle in Scripture is that rest is meant to be rhythm, not reward. Rest is rhythm, not reward. Some of us think we can't take a break unless we really work for it. It's not meant to be earned. It's a gift. You receive it. You live into it in that rhythm. So those two thoughts I'm going to leave with you. The book is great. Pick up a copy. Explore it in your neighborhood groups. Onward. Next practice, the slow reading of scripture. Again, the quote that would have been on screen is... It's undeniable that we find ourselves in a skimming, speed-reading, speed scrolling culture. And this consumption culture has profoundly influenced the way we engage or don't engage Holy Scripture. Instead of slowly ingesting the truth of God's written word, we live on the surface of the text, rarely settled enough to hear God's particular word to us in the particular season of our lives. This is why Psalm 1 serves as a much-needed corrective word to us. So I want us to hear Psalm 1 together. It is on the sheet um, that is on your, or beside you or under you at this point in time, and that we're going to return to in just a few minutes. Let's hear Psalm 1. Blessed is the one 
who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So before we get to the practice of the slow reading of scripture, the words translated as righteous and wicked need some nuancing to get to the original meaning. So usually when you and I think of a righteous person, we think of a spiritual giant, the most impressive Christian imaginable, always serving selflessly, never skips devotions, never skips youth group, that kind of thing. When we think of the wicked, we think of the worst person Ever, the most despicable human you can imagine. I don't have to name any names. You've got at least one you're thinking of. Well, to the Hebrew mind, the words righteous and wicked have to do with trajectory. They have to do with the way our feet are facing. They're about posture and attitude, the direction we're moving in. So the questions we could ask, is the trajectory of my life at this moment leading in a righteous or rightly related direction? Is it facing into God's life and God's trajectory toward shalom, toward the renewal of all things? Or is my life trajectory pointing away from these things? Am I, as the psalmist puts it, in step with the wicked, heading in a wrongly related direction? Am I, through my life, making a mockery of God's life, of the Jesus way of being? So it's quite possible for me to profess Christian faith and to be acting in such a way that I could fit easily into the category of the wicked. So in the context of the psalm, the righteous, those whose life trajectory is toward God, are gladly and delightedly guided by God's instruction. The wicked, those whose life trajectory is headed away from God, have zero space for it in their lives. And here's what I want us to notice about Psalm 1. The key difference between these two possible trajectories, according to verse 2, is meditation. Meditation. So if that's a new word or practice to you, thinking in in a Christian setting, I'm willing to bet you've meditated before, whether you know it or not. If you ever received an encouraging text or email from a close friend and the words meant a lot to you, or a love letter, say, that made you feel like you were floating... You've meditated. You spend time replaying the words in your head. The inverse is also true. You get a harsh, critical word that hurts you. We know what it's like to keep rehearsing the negative words over and over again, those negative scripts. And what we're doing is meditating. Who are the dog owners among us? Any dog owners in the house today? Just a few. Oh, man, when you throw your dog a bone and she growls and chews and plays with it for a week, that's... Meditation. In fact, the Hebrew word for growl is the same word translated as meditate in Psalm 1. What? Yes. Meditation, then, is the practice of slowly chewing 
on God's written word until it penetrates our hearts. Which leaves just one question. You all ready for some growling? I don't know, I just put it in my notes. It might delete later, but I just said it. So, um, The method, villainous outlines, and the one we're going to engage together is an ancient practice known as Lectio Divina. It's not new to many of you, but it could be brand new to some. It simply means divine reading or spiritual reading. It's the best way I know of to practice slowing down and chewing on scripture. So take the page handout that you've got, and um, the gray box on top is the Lectio flow we're going to follow. And so just want to walk through that with you. I'm going to read the text twice through, and as I do, I invite you to listen for image. What word or phrase or image stands out to you? Um, a handful of you might have seen the note in the Community Life email to bring a pen or a journal if you, or notebook. If you do have that, feel free to pull it out. It's okay to just be still and not have a pen or paper as well, but you have a page. So if you can source something and would like to make some notes or underlines, that would be time to do that. So listen for the first two readings. What word, phrase, or image seems to stand out to you? What has neon lights for you? I'll read it text again. And you're listening now for the intersection. How does this word or image intersect with my life? Why do I think that word or phrase stood out to me? What's going on in my experience right now that would make that make sense, that it would stand out? Listen for how does it intersect. Then we'll read it a fourth and final time. And on that reading, invite you to listen for the invitation. What does God seem to be holding out to you or offering or inviting you into? Some reminder... It's some little nudge, a shift in direction. It's something that God is inviting you to see that you haven't been seeing. So what's the invitation God's presenting to you and how might you respond? So that's the practice. And so when we get to the end, we, we, we've done this. You can do this solo, of course, on your own. You can do it in a small group. Um, we've done Lectio at Artisan in many settings, neighborhood groups, early mornings, um, on Instagram live, early during COVID. Um, when you have a smaller group, it's of course, you can take time, you can listen in on each other's uh, images, intersections, and invitations. We've got limits here, what we can do in this time and space, but we'll do our best. At the end, I'm gonna ask if there are a couple of folks who would briefly just wanna share their word or phrase and the invitation that surfaced for them. Um, and I'll remind us about that when we get to the end. But now let's just take a few minutes together and uh, listen in. So two readings, listen for the image. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked leads to destruction.
Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Give a brief moment to underline, make a note, what word or phrase or image stands out. Read it one more time now. Listen for the intersection. How does this connect with your life? Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. A minute or two. Okay, final reading. <clears throat> if it feels like you're kind of still in process, take this with you. Uh, spend some time with it this week. Last reading, listen for the invitation and see if you can articulate that in some way. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction.
give you about another half a minute to consider invitation and then I'll ask for if there's one or two that might want to just share where they are. Anyone feeling um, invited, em empowered, brave to offer anything just right where you are? This is the word or phrase. This is what I felt invited to. Yeah, word. Thank you, Lauren. Anyone else?
It's good. That's great. Thank you, Jenny. I appreciate that so much. Oh, that's good. Um, we're going to move on. Um, very briefly, I'll just share. I, I would like to sit with this a little bit more and have someone else read it to me. <laughs> However, I was thinking also about the yielding its fruit in season. I just turned 50 a couple of weeks ago, and so I'm thinking about my decade of the... Thank you. Um, so it intersects with my life because I'm thinking about the season of the 50s and, and like this next decade of my life. So fruit in season, not just a season of the year, but actual like a decade. Like you think in tens, and, or at least I'm thinking in tens, and being drawn to, to wonder with God at to what the fruitfulness of, of my next 10 years will be. An invitation, I think, to lean into this meditation practice as well. So thanks for um, braving all of this with no screen behind us and all of that stuff. So the commitment to stability is, is a very brief kind of... Uh, mention, even in Villadas' book, but this is just so good that I have to share it. So he said, contemplative life is not a solo enterprise. It's an invitation to a shared life with others. And I think that flips a bunch of things on its head just for a lot of us. A lot of us think that contemplative life is solo. It's all solitude. Well, no, even monks invited into community. It's an invitation to shared life with others. This is one of the great lessons we can learn from monastic communities. Monks who enter a monastery take a vow of stability that grounds them in their certain places for life. On some level, this vow is a manifestation of their commitment to silent prayer. How so? In silent prayer, we're called to withstand the inner disturbances and annoyances of ourselves for the sake of union with God. In a commitment to stability, we withstand the disturbances and annoyances of others for the sake of union with God and union with each other. I just so love that. This is the season you're being invited to consider a group practice of some kind, to lean into the community. Often when we're inviting folks into partnership with Artisan, we say, please stick with us through one significant disappointment. We will disappoint you. This is an imperfect community. Just one, preferably more. <laughs> but please do stick, consider that. So I love that contemplation and community, monastic imagination and racial reconciliation, which is next week. Get ready. How are you being invited to be deeply formed in this season? both through individual practices and shared ones.